are you? I am your host, Jordan Burnoff, and you are listening to the first episode of the Into the Bush podcast. Into the Bush is a podcast that explores the stories, perspectives, and teachings from knowledge keepers, PhDs, and people from all walks of life to explore environmentalism. You'll hear from differing perspectives to educate and challenge the way that you think. These are the stories of the people that live off of the land, the people that fight to protect it, and those that are finding their way through it. In today's episode, and our very first guest, I'd like you to welcome Melina Lubakan Mossimo. She's from Lubicon Cree Nation in Northern Alberta. She has worked on social, environmental, and climate justice issues for the past 20 years. Melina is the founder of Sacred Earth Solar, co-founder of Indigenous Climate Action. She was a fellow at the David Suzuki Foundation. She's also the host of a new TV series called Power to the People, which profiles renewable energy, food security, and eco-housing projects in Indigenous communities across Turtle Island. Facing firsthand impacts of the Alberta tar sands in her traditional territory, Melina has been a vocal advocate for Indigenous rights and environmental justice. For over a decade, Melina worked as a climate and energy campaigner with Greenpeace Canada and the Indigenous Environmental Network internationally. She's written for a variety of publications and produced short documentaries on the tar sands, on climate change, water issues, and Indigenous cultural revitalization. Melina has studied, campaigned, and worked in Brazil, Australia, Mexico, Canada, and across Europe, focusing on resource extraction, climate change impacts, media literacy, and Indigenous rights and responsibilities. Melina also shares her leadership and expertise on the boards of Seeding Sovereignty, Indian Collective, and on the Executive Steering Committee of Indigenous Clean Energy. Melina also works on the very important issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited people after the suspicious death of her sister, Bella, whose case still remains unsolved. So please be aware that, you know, at the latter end of our conversation, there will be a slight pause. So if you do choose to turn off the podcast and not listen into that part um we do respect that and like honor and hold yourself and your space safely and there will be resources and supports for people i just wanted to give you um a trigger warning that this is a part of the conversation but i i did feel like it it was a really important piece as it's connected to energy and environment in a very big way and that's Something that we often don't hear enough is that connection. And Melina has done an incredible job of bringing awareness to the issue and honoring those that we have lost. So without diving too deep into the conversation, because we really want to hear your perspective on all of this incredible work that you've been doing and, and why it's important, I'd like to just open up with a, a little bit of an introduction to yourself and let's talk about the topic of conservation. I think this is an interesting one, especially we're talking a lot about energy, we're talking about the land resource extraction. And, you know, we always talk about 
the consumption of things, but how do we limit that consumption? What does what does actually conserving, protecting, and being stewards of the land mean um, in terms of our understanding of conservation? Um, thank you for having me today, Jordan. Um, it's nice to discuss uh, Indigenous perspectives on conservation and environmentalism. I think conservation for me has a bit of a loaded history. So because of the conservationism movement that really excluded Indigenous peoples um, over the course of Canadian history, I would say it's it's sometimes hard for me to identify with that word in, in the English term. Um, for me, I would think more, like you said, in terms of like an Indigenous lens of um, like respecting Mother Earth and respecting the limits and the and the amount that we take. For me, it's the teaching has always been, and I think this really is across the board for many other Indigenous communities and cultures and nations around not taking more than you um, should and um, not taking more than you need. And for me, that is what conservationism means. I think sometimes we see a lot of cons in the conservation world, these like boundaries and like limitations and like quadrating off territory that excludes human participation. But for indigenous peoples, we've, you know, since time immemorial and especially predating Canadian colonial impact um, and colonial ways of being and interacting with our homelands is that conservationism sometimes tries to extract the human impact or the human kind of interaction and relationality with our homelands and within with indigenous I'd say there should be like a different term of indigenous like you know indigenous conservationism or something like that that kind of is inclusive of still ensuring that indigenous peoples have contact relationality are not separate from our homelands because a lot of times when you see conservation plans it is extracting the people from their homelands and that's something that I have an issue with conservationism um, but in terms of indigenous conservationism it's definitely not taking more than you need it's definitely understanding the bounds and limits of mother earth in her abundance even though a lot of times we think oh there's so much abundance and I think that's what unfortunately um, you know our white brothers and sisters have um, for the past 150 years it's just been like take 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 and that's been such a has had such a detrimental impact on um our homelands that now this idea of conservationism is like we're going to just protect this area and somehow that's going to negate all of the impact that that we've had in other areas and so as an indigenous perspective conservationism would be really understanding the bounds and limits of the ways in which we interact with our homelands so that's what it means to me um around really understanding that and understanding also, you know, that we are living now with the consequence of taking, taking, taking. And um, I think that's not a surprise to anybody, but, you know, 150 years ago or even less, the impact of the ways in which Indigenous people have had relationality, that have had relationship and reciprocity and living within those understandings of the bounty and ensuring that that bounty remains for the next seven generations. For me, that's what conservation should be. Um, and not a, 
a retroactive or like after the fact of reactive like that oh my god we have to now conserve this like little percentage of land it's like how do we live in in reciprocity with mother earth um and each other and the four-legged ones and the winged ones so for me that's conservation is around um understanding like you know there's like these new terms uh like like zero waste communities or net zero and indigenous peoples have always been zero waste you know like we've always understood the bounds and limits of um our relationship with mother earth and only taking as much as we need for that season for that point in time and ensuring that the next season um it's there and available for future generations so that's to me what indigenous conservation is in itself I love that. There's so many good points in there. Can you share a little bit about your own story and kind of how you got involved in the energy sector? And and I know, you know, you come from an area that is heavily, the land is heavily, heavily exploited uh, for oil. So maybe I'll let you share a little bit about your background, your upbringing, um, kind of what got you here today. My upbringing was one that I feel really lucky and privileged to have it's a it feels like it's basically the source of inspiration of why I started doing the work that I do is being from a from born into a remote community um that's you know eight hours north of Calgary um so pretty far north and you know I was born in the 80s and so that's when oil gas logging um started happening so we have actually impacts of logging conventional oil and gas logging tar sands and fracking so it's it's a lot of heavy industry that's really made such an impact on the land and so when i was first born that's when there was well before just before i was born there was a road an all-weather road because before that it was just like horse and wagon and like and or just like trucks trying to get through like unpaved areas and there was this all-weather road brought in and that was when kind of oil and gas and logging went rapid and it, and so my community started blockading a number of years later realizing the impact was already really very prevalent and I was at seven at the time and they started blockading and blocked that road um once like about eight hour eight years after it was built and so or maybe nine years and so the community just had had enough and they were just like this is one we had never signed treaty to you know even though we're in treaty eight territory never had ceded rights to the land and so the community was just like we can't, there's there was nothing else that community the community could do so families communities cookums elders children like everyone was on the blockade you know and they boycotted the olympics and started getting international like press at the time and so it was that was kind of my first like experience of that type of kind of like adversarial like understanding that we are on this side and there was there was another side um that was trying to come in and encroach and kind of disrupt the territory my previous experience before being on a blockade where i was like probably mostly in the car you know what i mean like the safest place for for kids to be but um my i was going out in the horse and wagon with my cookum and with some you know as a child in like you know age five six like leading up to that so it was a very different, beautiful, like pristine, like peaceful, like loving, um, just like on the horse and wagon with my grandparents that didn't speak English. They only spoke Cree. Um, they had hidden my dad from residential school. Um, but my aunts and uncles all were taken 
And so it was just, you know, it was like still living, like, I don't think a lot of communities had that. Some communities did that were remote, but it was a very remote experience that I really still cherish to this day of being like, you know, being able to have that kind of res kid experience of like remote isolation, but like loving the quiet, being on the land, hearing kind of the stars twinkle, like it was that peaceful. And then, then I think the like, choking like kind of impact of the two different worlds you know colliding between colonialism you know real like real day like live like just present day you know they talk about post-colonial that doesn't exist we still are in a colonial model of ongoing grievances where we have this resource extraction that's happening that's new colonialism and it's just like it just kind of locks heads with community right and so that was my experience. And then when I moved to the city, eventually, I just was like flabbergasted. I was pretty staggered by like the the discrepancy between um, resources and like revenue that was taken out of our homelands, taken out of the communities surrounding area. But yet the, a lot of those um, resources, didn't, resources didn't go back into the community. They went into the cities, you know. So when I moved to the city, I was like, we didn't have running water then there was running water in the city there was pay you know like way more paved roads or like schools libraries swimming pools like all these things going home it was like other than that all paved road that went through our territory like all the roads inside the community like mud you get stuck in like no running water like just like the immense poverty that we think of with indigenous communities where we're like literally economic hostages in our own homelands where there's like all of this industry happening around us that has been so detrimental to the land, air, water, and the people had where the burden really exists on the people's shoulders of what, what, you know, the rest of the resources, the extractivism that's getting pulled out of our homelands that literally benefits other people. It doesn't benefit the community as a whole. And they, they like to talk about jobs and all these things. And it's like, it's forced to labor. It's forced. It's like, you're forced into these jobs. There's no, and that's why I say economic hostages, because you're literally like, there's no other, there's no other alternative. You're stuck in a rock and a hard place. You're stuck to enforce these, our communities are forced to work with these industries, even if we don't agree with, and even if we know full well what's happening, that, the, that it's, you know, destroying homeland, that it's, that it's contaminating the water, that it's polluting the air, that animals and fish and birds and all the living beings that other, more than just humans, the, the very, you know, ecosystems are collapsing but yet we still are forced and it's like, well, you have a job and it's just like, that's it. That's, that's I always the, hear that, that it's like, well, that's, wouldn't you rather be at the table? Wouldn't you rather have this deal? Like it's going to happen anyways. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Cause like, I always struggle with that so much. You know, we, we're still just trying to survive. Yeah. And we, we, we are, I mean, it's, it's, we are communities of crises. We are communities that are still reeling from the very real impacts of colonialism and colonial policy that has been so detrimental to our communities and torn apart the social fabric of our communities. And so we're dealing with multiple crises all at the same time. You know, we have all of the highest percentage of highest suicide rate, highest poverty rate, highest, all the highest, you know, X, Y, and Z of, of the stats that are out there on top of having to deal with these multinational corporations and governments that are always going to have more money than our communities to be able to fight these issues, which communities have had done, you know, have done repeatedly. You look across the board in 
Iranian communities or tar sands communities or oil and gas or logging, you see fights after, you know, like examples of fights after fights after fights of trying to protect our homelands, but yet coming up short with, with the resources or the ability to sustain a fight, right? Like, so you talk about my community in 1988 with a massive blockade and a sustained fight, but that had just such immense impact on the community. Um, you know, the, with the divide and conquer tactics that the government would deploy, literally separated community and, and, and named a whole new nation, separate, a part of our membership just to divide our numbers. So like, there's a lot of things that happen within communities that stand up, you know? So then a lot of times when communities are made example of that have stood up to the government or oil and gas and, you know, then smack down, it's like some communities, I think like 20, 30, 40 years later after trying to put those fights in or like, get the Dalgamoth case out or like all of the Supreme Court, like amazing rulings that communities had to sacrifice for taking resources from the very minimal resources that they already have to, to uphold indigenous rights and title um, in this country. It's, it's a very exhausting, you know, line of work <laughs> for all of us that are kind of willing to stand up. So I can understand why communities do it. I don't necessarily always agree when communities are like, well, we have visited the table and we have to buy the pipeline or we have to do this. And it's like, uh, not necessarily, but, um, you know, it's like, again, we are economic hostages and there's not a vi the, the viable alternatives that need to be there that should have been there 20, 30 years ago of like utilizing solar or why we're talking today about just transition, because that's, that's kind of our way forward of trying to figure out how do we bring about solutions to these very real problems that our communities deal with. So what would you say are maybe some solutions or pathways or just some advice for communities when they're put into these situations? Because we often feel like, you know, that that might be our only option. But, you know, I think sometimes the best pathway is the harder pathway. And I guess that's where we really dive into the just transition. I think it, for me, what led me to try to start building solutions was just dreaming, like visioning. Um, I feel like that's a lot of times taken away from us. Um, because of through process processes of colonialism, like just kind of being resigned to being, oh, well, that's just the way it is, right? And um, that, you know, we are, we come from like a dreaming and visioning people. We come from ceremonial backgrounds and places and spaces and understandings and practices that predate this country. And that dreaming has been taken away from us because of, you know, residential schools. And, and I think it's about bringing back that dreaming and that visioning and that hope to the to the people um and that's i think for me where it started when i when we had you know i had already been campaigning um trying to raise awareness about climate change and you know environmental impacts of land and doing research around tar sands impacts for my master's degree and started speaking out against it and then we had a massive oil spill and it was just it was like one of the really intense soul-crushing experiences that people go through when you're like seeing your family being poisoned and the land and air being poisoned and flying over and just seeing this massive spill. And I was like, wow, it doesn't matter how much I go around the world and talk till I'm blue in the face, like about all of these impacts. If I can't change things on the ground, then like, what am I really doing? And so for me, it was about visioning like, okay, well, what do I want to see differently on, on the ground? And so I think it was trying to start like talking like walking the talk, you know, so to speak, even if it was like really challenging, you know, I, so I went back to do, finish my master's in, um, in my, and I was like, I was just adamant that the focus of my thesis wasn't just about 
writing about it, it was about implementation. Like how do we actually implement these types of projects into our community? So for me, it really started with wanting to see something different, something new and what that could look like. Um, and I think that's the first step is, is trying to vision what can be different, what can be new and what, and how we build it. Um, and that just takes time, you know, like it doesn't happen overnight and it didn't happen overnight. Like, you know, I wrote that, like that paper in 2012 and like the project went up in 2015, you know, it was, it took time, energy to bring in the resources, the partners, the people get the community sign on, get the like leadership tender, like to like have all of the different things of the community engagement pieces and on top of funding on top of, you know, making sure that we had connect connectivity. So I think it's like this work is it's like everybody's important in it. It's not just like one person can like save the day. And I think that's the thing with this like Western kind of notion of like, there's one hero that comes out and a superhero and aren't they so great? Look, at you know, and it's just this thing that like somebody else is going to save us. And it's, and it's like, no, we have to be the kind of the victors or like the saviors of our own dreams. Like no one else can be our savior. And, and that was, and how do we pull in other people to like join us in our dream, our dreaming? And that for me was kind of how you start moving from like talk to implementation of just trying to transition and adjust transition originally was about transitioning workers, right? And we need to transition our workers from the extractive industry into renewable into sustainability pieces and there's a lot of transferable skills between that and that's where that just transition came from like a worker from like a workers alliance and like unions in the states in like a blue green alliance that was happening but in here like the the terms also like evolved into understanding that we need to transition communities as well it's like it's that the communities that have really experience the brunt of the environmental degradation and the brunt the brunt of like our greed for the collective greed of like oil and gas and you know extractivism is on the brunt of BIPOC people predominantly in cancer clusters and like impact zones that those communities should be transitioning alongside um, if not first in in that transition and like we always see just like we've seen you know the same systems of capitalism repeat itself in terms of like where extractivism you see other communities benefit you see urban centers benefit you see you know the country as a whole benefit um and the community's not and so it's like this idea of like let's not perpetuate the same systems of harm let's ensure that communities are transitioning to understand and not always you know so that was for me was like well let's see what a just transition looks like on in little buffalo alberta or in any other indigenous community of what does implementation look like and it's not going to look perfect it's not going to be the end all be all but at least it's like a first step of for me what what i see as successful is like the grade fives or like the five-year-olds or the grade 12s all the people that are going to grow up seeing solar energy in our community like knowing that that's a real reality because it was the first time people seen 2015 people saw solar panels in real life you know like um and that's something that it's like just that spark, that change, you know, and that's why we call it the titapan because it's a coming of a dawn, a new era, that initial step into, you know, it's not, it's not going to solve things overnight, but it's like the idea that we need to transition and how do we do it in a way that's inclusive of communities.
There was a TV show that we filmed, I filmed with Real World, Real World Media um, called Power to the People, and that's about just transition in Indigenous communities. And that's a resource that is available for people right now um, that people could watch on APTN or sign into Lumi, which is like a streaming service of APTN. I think it's like $4.99 a month. Um, so the price of a cup of coffee, as I say, but no, just joking. Um, but you can watch it if you don't have cable, like most young people. Um, but if you stream, you can watch Power to the People. And that is something where we went from coast to coast to coast, 26 locations across the country and, and profiling Indigenous communities that have actually done implementation in the various different types of um, sustainability through like eco-housing, food security, and renewable energy, all the different types of renewable energy, and then interviewing community members and community leaders, and then also renewable energy technology experts. And so just kind of like trying to uncover and understand why a community would pick a certain type of technology, how they implemented, what the community story is, and kind of the legacy that it has on the community. That for me um, is something that I think could be utilized as a resource across the board. And it actually just got picked up in Australia, which is exciting. It's going to be on national TV in Australia now. Wow, congrats. Um, yeah, that was so cool. exciting. Yeah. That's so cool. So, I mean, and so for me, it's just uplifting other communities that are already doing this work. And I feel like that is a sad thing when we're dealing with climate change or trying to grapple with just transition, that there's so many community stories already doing this amazing work and yet we're not seeing enough of them being profiled. And so that's the part of Power to the People. And then with um, at Indigenous Climate Action, alongside um, with Power to the People and Real World Media and Sacred Earth Solar, um, the organization that I started to put renewable energy into communities. And then also um, as a fellow at the David Suzuki Foundation at the time, developed this just transition guide that is like a hundred pages, but it's like a long time coming document that profiles this, not only just the stories and power to the people, but trying to discuss what just transition means, what it might look like in other communities, what the different technologies are, um, the pros and cons of them, what it looks like to build a community story, um, community energy kind of story or like um, project. And that was something that I just really wish I had when I was trying to build the Pitapa and the solar project back home of like, just like a, how to start understanding what like on grid, off grid systems were, what, what are grid systems? Like all these things that I just kind of had to like learn and research and study myself. Um, that's the hope that with a just transition guide that people can utilize those as, as like a, a resource. Each community knows what the problems are. So therefore each community is the one that's going to have to develop the solutions and we can kind of learn from other examples, but ultimately each community story is going to be a little bit different. And so that's the idea of having a just transition guide to be able to have a scan of what's kind of happening and then how to build from there. fair warning to our listeners and even to ourselves here that, you know, sometimes these conversations can be quite heavy, but I'd love to look at it from a perspective of like, what can people do to help and to create awareness? Because there are strong linkages between uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women, two-spirited, and the energy sector. Um, can you maybe share a little bit about your work in that space and 
maybe some of the ways that, that people can get involved? Well, I think ultimately violence against Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited peoples stems from the colonial values of patriarchy, domination, and the devaluation of Indigenous bodies. And that's from the get-go, that's from the start of colonization here, if we're talking specifically on Turtle Island and so-called Canada, um, that the impact has started from then, you know, like that Indigenous women were like back in, say, 150 years ago, like were seen as dispensable and, you know, men and women and two-spirited people. But like for women, there was there was violence against women in terms of using women as like an act of war and the, the rape and pillaging of women and then also of the land. And so those go hand in hand in terms of seeing the, and the same thing, like for Indigenous peoples, we see, we call Mother Earth, you know, Mother, we see, um, we see her as a relation, uh, you know, not something that's outside of us, not something that that's, she's a part of us, we are a part of her. And so when we see violence against the land in terms of like extractivism and the kind of raping and pillaging of, of Turtle Island, we've also seen that hand in hand with the raping and pillaging of women and girls and two-spirited people and so there is a commonality there of and that's like an inextricable link of of that mentality that um sees uh, sees other life as dispensable or devalued so until we do away with that colonial mindset we are going to continue to see extractivism we are going to continue to see violence against um, black brown and indigenous bodies need to go through which you know we see happening in different segments of society of decolonial like decolonization or just understanding and trying to shift paradigms of just the western eco like eurocentric ways of understanding the world to you know expanding to indigenous lens indigenous paradigms of you know indigenous ways of knowing and being um but that's you know that's a slow process and it's led to a lot of hurt and a lot of impact to still to the land and to the people of Turtle Island, the original inhabitants. So for murdered, missing indigenous women, girls and two-spirited people, like that's been happening for decades and decades, you know, and there was a, there was the call out for an inquiry and then the inquiry happened and there still is a lot of work to be done. And there's recommendations both in the TRC as well as the Indigenous Women's Inquiry that need to be adhered to, need to be implemented, and we haven't seen that happen yet. I think they've been initial steps, you know, but we haven't seen um, enough um, actionable items, I would say. As a family member, you know, um, my sister was found dead in 2013. She has just finished um, her degree in college in Toronto, and it's still an unsolved case. So our family took part of the MMIW inquiry and yet, you know, we still have an unsolved case, you know, so there's not a lot of, in my opinion, there was a lot of awareness raising around the issue, but I would say again, not enough um, implementation of the recommendations that have been put forward to ensure that cases can be solved and that more women can be protected. So there's still a lot of work to be done, I would say. And in terms of extractivism, um, the ways in which it plays out on the land is, you know, the violence that we see on the land, but then also with 
when big projects go forward and they're being built in indigenous territory, there's man camps and these man camps, you know, there's cases in like a report that folks could refer to um, that are listing that Amnesty International put out a number of years back around man camps and violence against women. And that's been, you know, documented in the UN. It's been documented in, in different um, research uh, reports that show an increase in incidents of violence against Indigenous bodies when extractivism is happening and coming in the form of, quote, man camps, where we have a lot of transient workers that are, you know, um, bringing in, yeah, just it presents a lot of unsafe spaces and um, situations for the Indigenous peoples and those surrounding communities. And so it's, yeah, it's still very prevalent. It's still an issue that needs to be dealt with alongside you know, extractivism, because we see it's, again, hand-in-hand extractivism of bodies and extractivism of land, and those, until we do away with these kind of colonial mentalities around how the land is here to serve us and how Indigenous bodies apparently are, then it's it's not it's not really going to go away until um, the mindset changes. Thank you, Tinaskam Tim. Thank you so much for sharing that. We've talked about a few pretty heavy topics today, and I feel like, you know, that's something that's that's quite common in energy and environment, especially for Indigenous people, that we're always having to face our traumas when we talk about the earth and the impact of the earth. Um, so I just wanted to say that I appreciate you sharing all of this. Um, and on that note, just, you know, in in the direction of looking at things from a positive because there is so much good that can be done in this industry and and you're doing that work um there are so many incredible people doing that work but you know it's just so important that we're we're met with all of these these instances where we're constantly re-traumatized or triggered by these conversations and i'm just curious as to you know how how you keep such a, a bright happy spirit and stay healthy and you know, still continue to stay in this space because it, it can be a, a hard space for people to be in, especially Indigenous women. So I'd love to hear um, how, how you do it. How do you, Melina, through this space? Uh, I mean, I've, I think I've had to learn the hard way, to be honest. I was always a yes person for a very long time. And I'm learning how to say no, you know, later in life, which I wish I learned earlier in life, to be honest, and was also given the permission earlier in life to say no. I think um, people that want to do good, quote unquote, in the world, like are yes people. And we are kind of like, we are those like nurture people that um, kind of want to like, not people please, but just like give our, give it our all. Um, And unfortunately, within hyper capitalism and like hyper productivity um that is definitely taken advantage of you know people just keep asking for more and more they're like oh this person's a high capacity individual let's just keep asking them to be a part of certain things and i think now that i'm older i realize i just can't do it all and i can do my best and um i feel like my best is good enough (laughs) you know i feel like i i don't feel guilty anymore when i say no and i feel like that took a really long time to get to and actually had like most people that are yes people they usually collapse you know and and our bodies can't sustain high levels of trauma for extended periods of time and so for me mine was like 20 years of organizing and my body was just like eh, no and so i had a collapse and i was bedridden and i was extremely ill and my body was just like no more 
more and more now in this day and age of being trauma informed. I think our a lot of our older generations and our like my parents and and you know older generations, they didn't have the privilege to be trauma quote unquote trauma informed because they were just living the trauma of residential schools. Like I'm the first generation to not go to residential school. Like my dad went to residential day school and all my aunts and uncles went to residential school. So I'm the first to even have a privilege, even though I live a lot of intergenerational trauma, um, the privilege of not completely being traumatized from the age of five to age of 18, right? In residential school. So um, trying to really understand how trauma plays a part in our daily lives and what our trauma responses are. And so for me, it's about now it's really trying to understand when I do this work, which is very traumatic, it's still, it's like heavy work. Like you said, it's, it's really intense work. How do we sometimes, how are we able to take care of ourselves in the collective, you know? And I think a lot of times I was very like, like I didn't, I I didn't relate to the self-help kind of self-care notion because I found it very individualistic and like, oh, that's not an indigenous way of being. So what is an indigenous way of being in understanding how to take care of oneself while still being a part of the collective, you know, because and so indigenous well-being, in my opinion, a lot of times was very, was very part of the collective. We did our ceremonies in the collective. We were taught in a collective. And so how do we heal in a collective? So it's like, how do we heal ourselves? And so, you know, there was the individual parts where it was like vision quest or like being allowing the individual to have an individual experience, but always part of the collective. That's what Indigenous ways of, my understanding anyways, of Indigenous ways of knowing and being and existing within collective. And so how do we heal ourselves and how do we heal collectively? I think for us moving forward, regardless of what sector we work in, um, is incredibly important and there's more space um, and acknowledgement and that just that there wasn't that much of a conversation like even 20 years ago when I first started doing this work and so there's more language around how to take care of oneself um, and take a step back and say no and do all the things that we you know need to give ourselves permission to do and also give others permission to do um, to support one another in our healing and so for me it's it's um, trying to understand the ways in our body, the ways in which our bodies respond to trauma, and then being able to like understand that somatically in the body, as well as spiritually, um, psychologically, and you know how do those things fit in to the collective? And I think that's for me how I've been able to stay in this work of trying to um, focus on not only just just transition, but what does healing justice look like? What is um, collective healing look like for our organizations and our communities as we move forward in this work? Absolutely. And yeah, there'll definitely be links in the show notes to Indigenous Climate Action, to the Just Transition Guide, to Power to the People and all those wonderful resources uh, that Melina highlighted. But just in closing here, do you have, you know, one last piece of advice? Maybe it's a book for people to read. Maybe it's a podcast to listen to. Uh, Maybe it's a person within community that, you know, it's a story. Maybe it's from Power to the People or you know, what, what is a, a piece of advice or something you can share with the, the listeners to take away from this? Oh, man, so many things. Um, I think ultimately, like, if you have an idea and you think it's going to help community or help your family or help your nation, like, just really dig deep and keep keep pushing until you see it to fruition. I feel like 
you know, you're not always going to feel supported. You're not always going to feel like, um, like it's, it can be very isolating and feeling like alone work, but like you're alone in the work, but you're not, you know, even I go through those things. Like, even though I feel pretty supported, um, most of the time I can also feel very alone and isolated because I feel like the task at hand is so big for us in dealing with the climate crisis that, um, I'd say just continue to um, believe in yourself and continue to push through um, and finding that whatever that inspiration is that you, um, that inspires you, whether it be like through spiritual means or through um, like healing or through ceremony or through finding supports or yeah, for me, it was for the healing process where I'm at, I can speak specifically to that, like it was like finding other books and podcasts around understanding trauma. And so like, I have a couple of books behind me on my bookshelf that I've read. One is called my grandmother's hands. And I really like this book because it is from a black clinical therapist that talks about white supremacy and the trauma upon bodies of like of impact and it takes you through steps of trying to kind of like unpack that so you understand like what your trauma responses are. So it's a really great book. It's a good resource. You can also listen to it on Audible. I also like this other book, um, taking a lot of inspiration from north, the south of the medicine line with um, also um, Love and Rage, it's called, this other book by this other um, black spiritual um, like llama that is talking about like how trauma plays out you know, in our bodies, in our communities through like anger and how anger a lot of times is unsafe for us. And so how do we like do things and like, how do we move towards healing in like a healthy way of expressing um, our frustration? And so I feel like those books for me personally right now have been super helpful um, in trying to understand what healing is and how we can kind of like, what are specifics like tools to be able to utilize, um, that healing because I think sometimes even just like climate change healing can be really overwhelming and there's not always a lot of supports you know unless you're like really privileged and you can do ceremony at home but for indigenous peoples that don't live in their home communities how do we find these supports in other places so I've I've um really like leaned on as I've gone into another like healing phase of my life just like listening to books and podcasts there's like a healing justice podcast um but yeah I feel like those for me this healing work is going to have to be alongside um, the rest of my life's work because of just understanding now how much trauma plays into even the work that we do within community. Yay, yay. I love that. Thank you so much for all of your knowledge today, um, for those resources, and most of all for being a part of this community. This is very healing, you know, hearing and learning from you. I feel very, very privileged and honored to be able to, to share your story in, in what way that I can. Hi, hi. Thank you for having me, and it's nice to reconnect with you. Thank you.